chapter 16, Driving, from James's point of view. One Saturday morning in 1973, a few weeks after I got back from Louisville, and just a few months after my stepfather passed away, Mommy woke me up and said, We're going driving. She thrust my two-year-old niece, Z, that was her name, just plain Z, into my arms, and we headed out to Daddy's car. My stepfather had kept his 69 Pontiac Catalina, gold-colored with blue interior, immaculate. Before that, he'd had a 65 Chevy Impala that he had paid good money for. The car, white with red interior, was a bomb. He called it a cheese box. I'll never buy another Chevy again, he fumed as as the car, loaded with kids, sat in traffic, its engine steaming and sputtering. It seemed to break down every five minutes. When it did start, a key wasn't necessary. You simply turned the ignition switch in your hand and it fired. And one evening, a guy did just that as Daddy was standing by the kitchen window washing dishes. He watched in silence as the guy drove off in a cloud of blue smoke. This must be my lucky day, he said. Mommy had never driven before, as far as I knew. She was afraid to drive. She was a certified dyed-in-the-wool New York City transit passenger who could tell you what subway train went anywhere, which stop to get off at, and how far it was to the next one if you missed your stop and had to walk back. Depending on public transportation meant she was late for everything. For work, for open school nights, for picking us up whenever she had to. Every summer when I returned home from Fresh Air Fun Camp, the yellow school buses would drop us off in Manhattan and I'd mournfully watch 300 hugging, kissing, slobbering, happy reunions between campers and parents while the counselors flipped coins to see who would wait with me, at which time Mommy would finally turn the corner at 42nd Street. I could spot her bowed legs a mile away and run up breathlessly, hugging me as the counselors looked on with looks like, I had no idea. But those days were gone. We needed a car. It was time for Mommy to drive. I hate this, she said as we climbed in. You have to tell me what to do. I was almost 16 then, and though I had no license, I knew how to drive, having spent a good deal of time driving Daddy's car when Ma wasn't around, not to mention other cars I wasn't supposed to be driving. How she knew I knew how to drive, she mercifully mercifully chose not to discuss, but then I had to begin to turn around. Deep inside, I knew that my friend Chicken Man back in Louisville was right. I wasn't any smarter or any wiser or any bolder than the cats on the corner. And if I chose that life, I would end up on the corner, no matter what my brains or potential. I knew I wasn't raised to drink every day, to work at a gas station, and to get killed fooling around with people like Herman and his gas station knuckleheads. That life wasn't as wild and as carefree as it looked from the outside anyway. It was ragged and cruel. I didn't want to end up that way, stabbed to death after an argument over a bottle of wine, or shot dead by some horny dude who was trying to take my manhood. You have to choose between what the world expects of you and what you want for yourself. My sister Jack told me several times, put yourself in God's hands and you can't go wrong. I knew Jack was right. And when I got back to New York in the fall of 1973 for my junior year in high school, I resolved to jump back into the studies and rebuild myself. Like my own mother did in times of stress, I turned to God. I lay in bed at night praying to him to make me strong, to rid me of anger, to make me a man. And he listened. And I began to change. I didn't change right away. For one thing, I was still strung out on herb. I'd watch newscasters Roger Grimsby and a young Geraldo Rivera do grim face reports on Channel 7 Eyewitness News about the dangers of being hooked on marijuana. And I'd laugh. You can't get hooked on reefer. I told my friends. I can stop anytime I want. But deep inside, I knew I was hooked. And I was secretly jealous of those from my drug circle who got themselves together and pulled out. 
Day after day, I found myself in some dude's house getting blasted on weed and alcohol while he stuffed tiles under the door to keep the smell out. I was also suffering occasional flashbacks from taking LSD, which I had done a lot in previous year. The flashbacks came out of nowhere. A joint or a cigarette would set them off. Or nothing at all. I'd be walking down the street and suddenly find myself blasted, tripping, that acid clairvoyancy high where people seem to be made of glass and the back of your hand becomes a purple star. I'd wander around the neighborhood paranoid, avoiding everyone I knew until the high wore off. Thank God crack wasn't available then, because I would have certainly become a crack addict. As it was every single day, on the way to school, during lunch, and on the way home, I felt I had to get high. If I ran out of pot, I drank wine. And when I couldn't get that, my buddy Marvin and I drank NyQuil, which got you high and sleepy and slightly sick. I'd come home every night blasted, smelling like a pothouse, promising myself as I put my key in the door that I wouldn't get high the next day, only to open it and find Mommy standing behind it screaming at me, What's the matter with you? Your eyes are all red and you smell funny. I wanted to give up weed, but I couldn't. Weed was my friend. Weed kept me running from the truth. And the truth was, my mother was falling apart. Looking back, I see it took about 10 years for Mommy to recover from my stepfather's death. It wasn't just that her husband was suddenly gone. It was the accumulation of a lifetime of silent suffering, some of which my siblings and I never knew about. Her past had always been a secret to us and remained so even after my stepfather died. But what she had left behind was so big, so complete, that she never entirely let, left it. The dissipation of her own Jewish family, the guilt over abandoning her mother, the separation from her sister, the sudden tragic death of her first husband, whom she adored. While she never seemed on the verge of losing her mind, there were moments when she teetered close to the edge, lost in space. Even in my own self-absorbed funk, I was worried about her. Because my siblings and I slowly got to our emotional feet, Mommy staggered about in an emotional stupor for nearly a year. While she was weebled and wobbled and leaned, she did not fall. She responded with speed and motion. She would not stop moving. She rode her bicycle. She walked. She took long bus rides to faraway department stores and supermarkets where she'd window shop for hours and spend 50 cents. She could not grasp exactly what to do next, but she kept moving as if her life depended on it, which in some ways it did. She ran as she had done most of her life, but this time she was running for her own sanity. She operated on automatic mode, rising each morning and chasing us off to school as if things were just as they always were, but she could make no decisions. Even the simplest choice, like whether to have a touch-tone phone or a rotary one, required enormous, painstaking deliberation. If the furnace broke down, it stayed broken. Not just because she didn't have the money to fix it, but because, well, just because. She had always been incredibly disorganized, but now her disorganization reached new heights. I went to gym class, opened a paper bag from home in which I had stored my gym gear, and found her underwear inside. She'd disappear from the house for hours and come back with no explanation as to where she'd been. About a year after my stepfather died and her best friend, a wonderful black woman named Irene Johnson, passed away, and Mommy teetered at the edge again, standing over the kitchen sink, washing the same pot for hours, sniffling back her tears and snapping, Get away from me! when we approached her. You only have one or two good friends in life, she used to preach at us, and for her, Irene was one of those. She and Irene went back to Harlem in the 40s when Ma first came to New York. Irene understood how far she had come. Irene had helped her raise her older children and had been like a sister to her. Yet she refused to go to Irene's memorial service. I'm done with funerals, she announced. 
Yet you could see the pain on her face as she picked up the phone to dial Irene's sister to ask her about the final details of her best friend's life. Please stay in touch, Ma said, and Irene's sister did, for years. Ma was utterly confused about all but one thing. Jesus. The young Jewish girl who at one time could not allow herself to walk into a Gentile church now couldn't do without it. Her orthodox Jewish ways had long since translated themselves into full-blown Christianity. Jesus gave Mommy hope. Jesus was Mommy's salvation. Jesus pressed her forward. Each and every Sunday, no matter how tired, depressed, or broke, she got up early, dressed in her best, and headed for church. When we kids grew too old and big for her to force us to go, she went alone, riding the F train from Queens to Brooklyn to New Brown Memorial, the church she started with my father. Church revived her, filled her up, and each Sunday she returned a little more renewed. Until that Saturday afternoon, she announced she was going to drive my stepfather's car. She sat behind the wheel, tapping it nervously and muttering while I settled in the front seat and held Z in my arms. We didn't bother with seat belts. She stuck the key in the ignition. The engine roared to life. What do you do now, she asked. Put it in gear, I said. Oh, I know that, she said. She slammed the car into drive and pulled off in a cloud of burning rubber and smoke, swerving down the street, screaming hysterically, Woo! Slow down, Ma, I said. She ignored me. I don't have a license, she shrieked as the car veered from side to side. If I get stopped, I'm going to jail. She went about four blocks, ran a stop sign without pausing. Then at the next intersection, whipped a wide, arcing left turn, stabbing the accelerator pedal and sending the big sedan reeling down the wrong side of the street as oncoming traffic swerved to avoid us. Watch it. What are you doing, Ma? Stop the car, I hollered. I need to go to the A&P. I need to go to the A&P, she shrieked. This is what I'm driving for, right? We jerked along for a few blocks, no cops anywhere, and miraculously arrived at the A&P. Since she didn't know how to parallel park next to the curb, she pulled up next to a parked car, slammed on the brakes, put the car in park, smashed the parking brake with her foot, and got out, leaving the engine running. Wait here, she said. I held Z in my arms while Mommy ran inside. When she came back out, she released the parking brake, threw the car into drive, and pulled away without looking over her shoulder. Then suddenly, for no apparent reason, she might have gotten the accelerator and the brake pedal mixed up. She stood on the brake pedal with all her might. The power brakes locked, and I was strong toward the windshield with little Z in my arms. The baby's tiny head flew at the dashboard with a great whipping motion, missing it by a millimeter. Had she hit it, the force would have severely injured her. The car sat there, the motor humming softly, while Mommy gasped for breath. That's it, she said. I quit. She drove home slowly, parked the car, and walked away from it like she had never seen it in her life. She never got inside it again. It sat there for months, leaves gathering around its tires again, snow accumulating on its hood, till she finally sold it. I'll never learn to drive, she said. The irony was that Mommy knew how to drive before she was 18. She drove her father's 1936 Ford back in Suffolk, Virginia. Not only did she drive it, she drove it well enough to pull a trailer behind it full of wholesale supplies for her father's grocery store. She drove the car and trailer on paved and dirt roads between Norfolk, Suffolk, Portsmouth, Virginia Beach, and North Carolina. She could back the trailer up with the goods in it, unload it at the store, back the car into the yard, unhook the trailer, and park the car in the garage, backing in. But she had left her past so far behind that she literally did not know how to drive. Rachel Deborah Shilsky could drive a car and pull a trailer behind it, but Ruth McBride Jordan had never touched a steering wheel before that day in 1973, and you could make book on it. Chapter 17, Lost in Harlem, from Ruth's Perspective. 
When I came to New York after high school, I worked in my Aunt Mary's leather factory and stayed with Booba, who had moved to the Bronx. It wasn't a good situation. I wasn't a child anymore. My mother's sisters were done with me. Aunt Mary let me work in her factory, but she cut me no slack by any means. By then, she was an obese woman with a very pretty face, and she ruled her whole roost with an iron fist, including Uncle Isaac, her husband. What a henpecked husband he was. He was a shoemaker who worked at an exclusive shoe factory at 53rd and 5th Avenue. H. Bindles. They stitched shoes for some of the richest women in New York, movie stars like Janet Gaynor and Myrna Loy. I thought he had the most glorious job in the world, meeting movie stars, but I was scared of him. He was a balding man with a nervous twitch in his face, and he drank heavily as soon as he walked in the house. He always hid a bottle of liquor in the kitchen cabinet, and he'd take big swigs from it and lean on the counter, breathing heavily. His face would turn red, and he'd become vulgar and mean. Meanwhile, his wife, Aunt Mary, was having her own party with a man named Mr. Stein. He was her best friend's husband. What a scandal. That man was fine, too, honey. Yes, he was. Tall and handsome. He'd come into her factory office twice a week, and they'd close the door, smooch it up, and have wine and cheese and crackers. I knew this because I was the one Aunt Mary sent to the store for their refreshments. She'd snap, Rachel, go get me some wine and cheese and crackers. And sure enough, after a while, up jumps old Mr. Stein. He'd slip into her office so they could close the door and smooch away. After an hour or two, Aunt Mary would come out with her hair and makeup all messed up and her face all red. Of course, I acted like I saw none of this. I was happy to get a job. Shortly after I got there, around 1939, she hired a new man who had just come to New York from North Carolina named Andrew McBride. He called himself by his middle name, Dennis. This was your father. Now that was a true man there. By that I mean he was inquisitive and funny and easygoing and secure. Dennis was an excellent leather maker and artisan type, and he quickly became Aunt Mary's best worker. Aunt Mary liked to boss all her workers around, and one day she told Dennis to go pick up a huge roll of leather and take it to the Manhattan subway. The roll weighed nearly a hundred pounds. Dennis said, I'm sorry, but it's impossible for one person to carry that alone, and he refused to do it. That was one of the first times I ever saw a man, any man, stick up to Aunt Mary. She backed down. Dennis saw the callous way my aunt treated me, and he saw her love tryst with Mr. Stein, and he never said anything about how she acted with Mr. Stein, but he's always offer a kind word to me, or just make a joke. What a sense of humor he had. That man could make a dog laugh. He'd sometimes bring me a cup of coffee, coffee or just do kind things for people, not just for me, but for anyone. That's the kind of person he was. He was the kindest man I'd ever met to this day, and if he'd had any sense, I would have snatched him up right away and married him but I was young and trying to get away from my family. And plus, I discovered Harlem. I don't know what drew me there, maybe because I'd lived around black folks most of my life or because I'd heard so much about it. In those days, nobody in New York City went to the village to have fun. Harlem was the place. White and black came to Harlem to party. There weren't heavy drugs and crime like there is now. It was different. People were flowing up to Harlem in droves, from the South, from Chicago, from every place. Harlem was like magic. I'd take the number two subway train from Aunt Mary's factory and jump off at 125th Street, and the adventure would begin. There were theaters from 8th Avenue down to Lenox Avenue. One block of Harlem had more movie theaters than all of Suffolk. The Lowe's, the Alhambra, the Rialto, then crossing over into 7th Avenue were a bunch of smaller theaters, and of course, on 125th Street, you had the Apollo Theater. Sometimes I'd go into the Apollo and stay all afternoon. There were four shows, and if you went at 11 a.m., you could see three shows, plus the movies. 
I got tired of Aunt Mary treating me so mean, so I quit her factory and started looking for a job as an usher or a movie ticket clerk in Harlem. I'd always liked movies and theaters, so one afternoon I moseyed up to the movie house on 7th Avenue and asked for the manager. He came out, looked at me, and asked, What the heck are you doing in Harlem? I'm looking for a job, I said. What kind of job you want, he asked. A ticket clerk, I said. What else are you looking for, he asked. I'm not looking for anything else, I said. I want a job as a ticket clerk or an usher. You have an usher job? He got mad. We don't do that kind of thing here, he said. You got to go somewhere else to do that, he said. I never caught on to what he was saying. This man thought I was a prostitute, which I almost did become. I went to a few other places with similar results. Nobody would hire me. Why would a white girl hang around Harlem unless she was up to something bad? When there was so much work downtown. Impossible. And I was so naive, I just kept wandering around, not knowing I was headed for trouble. Which I found soon enough. I had no luck with the movie theaters, so I decided to try beauty parlors. Back in Suffolk, Tata made me take a beauty course from a woman who had a thriving beauty parlor downtown. She employed one beautician, a blonde girl who wore orange lipstick and lived out in the country and came to Suffolk every day to work. This girl taught me how to do manicures and also how to work on hair. How to finger wave, shampoo, and give permanence. But this was on white people's hair. Well, I said hair is hair. And I went into the little place off 135th and 7th Avenue and I said, I can give permanence. And the woman hired me and gave me a chair. Well, I didn't know a thing about permanent black people's hair, and my first customer was a black woman, and I mauled the woman's hair. Her hair looked like chopped meat when I was done. I kept telling her, you'll be ready as a radio, ready as a radio. That was a big saying back then, ready as a radio. I told her this while I was permanent cutting her hair because you're a hairdresser, you have to chat with the customers and make them feel good and act like everything is toasty. Well, I didn't last the day before they threw me out. I fumbled around, fumbled around, and finally I said to myself, well, I can manicure good. I'd seen plenty of salons and barbershops with signs posted that said manicurist wanted. They were mostly men's barbershops. That didn't bother me because I heard that being a manicurist in a barbershop was easy and the tips were good. I walked up and down 7th Avenue and finally I came to a place called the High Hat Barbershop. It was a block from Small's Paradise on 7th Avenue and 138th Street. There was a sign in the window that said manicurist wanted. So I went in and inquired about the job. The manager, Rocky, was a heavy, well-dressed, light-skinned man with a deep voice. He was in his 50s. He hired me immediately. He put the manicuring table in the front window and plopped me right there and I worked in the window. I went home that night and told my grandmother I had a job that paid $15 per week. Booba said, what kind of job is it? It's a good job, I told her. But I didn't tell her what kind of job it was. Neither did I tell her where it was. There were a lot of entertainers and musicians who came through there, and many times I heard them remark to the boss, Rocky, you're taking a chance having this underage white girl working here. But he didn't pay them no mind. I was 19, and that was old enough for him. He began to hang around my manicure table all the time. One day, he told me he would take me to lunch, and I accepted. He had a nice car parked in front of the shop, and he was quite prosperous, so I went out with him. I didn't make too much of it. I wasn't aware that he had other plans for me. He started taking me out more and more, to the Apollo and movies, and then he would drive me back home to the Bronx. He had a nice car and money, so what the heck? I was impressed by that. He took me to clubs, and he was well-known to folks there. Sometimes he would take me into Small's Paradise, which was frequented by musicians, entertainers, pimps, and prostitutes, and he seemed to know everyone. I told him I always wanted to be a dancer, that I wanted to try out for the Rockettes at Radio City. He said, I'll set it up, but I got scared and didn't go to the audition. I was a dumb small-town girl but I wasn't dumb enough to go down there and make a fool of myself. 
What if all the other girls dance better than me? Forget it, honey. Rocky rented me a room on 122nd, near 7th, so I wouldn't have to make that long trip to my grandmother's house in the Bronx. He took me driving down 7th Avenue and up and down 125th Street. There were girls standing around in the street. He said, I'm going to teach you about those girls soon. Well, I knew what was happening then, but I didn't say anything. I didn't have any objection to it at first. I would stay in the little room he rented for me for a few days, then go back to Booba's, then go back to my little room again. Booba was getting very suspicious now, but she was very old then. She slept a lot, you know, and she had diabetes, and I got on over on her on the way my grandkids get over on me now. I told her anything, you know, and after a while it got so that I couldn't see my grandmother anymore and kept doing what I was doing, hanging out in Harlem. I had to break away and not go back home to her because Booba reminded me too much of what I was and where I came from. I needed to move into Harlem completely and make enough money to stay there and be cool and wear the fancy dresses and the clothes. So one day I asked Rocky, when do I get to make money like your other girls? I knew what I was saying. I wasn't blind. But what was love to me? What did I know about love and sex? I wanted to be swinging, but Rocky said, you're not ready to get out there. I'll tell you when you're ready. Well, one night I was fooling around up at Small's Paradise or one of those clubs with Rocky, and I hadn't been back to Booba's for a couple weeks, and for some reason I started thinking about Mama and Dee Dee. I was afraid to call home because of Tata, but I knew Dennis wasn't working for, was working for Aunt Mary, so I somehow ran him down in Harlem where he was staying. I asked him to see if he could find out how my mother and sister were doing because it was a small factory, and he would hear my aunt talking about things. He said, They've been looking for you, Ruth. How are you doing? And I told him all about my new flat and my new friend Rocky and how nice he was and a look crossed Dennis's face that made me go silent. I was living high off the hog, you know, just trying to bury my past and get away from my father. But when I started to tell Dennis what I was doing, I felt so ashamed because the look on his face said it all. He said, Ruth, your parents haven't done nothing to you that was so bad as to make you run around with that man. That man's a pimp. He's a pimp and he's leading you around by the nose. And he sat there and he kind of fumed. He wasn't angry. He just seemed disappointed. I felt so ashamed then. I got up and said, They don't have to look for me anymore. I'm going home. I gathered myself together and went straight back to Booba's in the Bronx. She was so worried about me, but when she asked where I'd been, I didn't give her any direct answers. I just told her not to answer any phone calls or give out any kind of communication about me. Rocky called and sent flowers, but I never called him back. He was persistent and at one point came to Booba's apartment and knocked on the door and stood in the hallway saying, Come out, Ruth. I know you're home. Come on out. But I stood behind the door and didn't open it or say a word. He kept sending flowers and trying to get me back into his clutches. But after a while, he stopped calling. And I never saw him again.